Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. I'm your host, Emily Flippin. I'm Jason Moser. I'm Nick Seipel. I'm Dylan Lewis. And today we're talking financials. Today we're talking consumer goods. Wildcard Wednesday. And we're talking energy. And today we're talking tech. Let's dive in. It's Monday, June 21st. I'm your host, Jason Moser. And on this week's financial show, we've got the latest from Bill Spackman. That's right, Bill Spackman. What should investors make of all of this inflation talk? And how are the banks, how is the Fed, how are they dealing with it all? And we'll also wrap up the show with a couple of stocks to watch, as always. Joining me this week at Certified Financial Planner. And hey, hes I found this out today. He's not the biggest Star Wars guy, and that's okay. It's Matt Frankel. Matt, how's everything going? Pretty good. It's a beautiful day in South Carolina. How are you doing today? Hey, you know, no complaints. Uh, back at it after a lovely Father's Day. It's uh, lovely weather here in Virginia. Very hot, very sunny. Um, but, you know, it does feel like things are are back to normal pretty much. You get outside and you can see people out doing stuff left and right. It's, it's nice. So, good day. Yeah. Um, Matt, we were talking about uh, last week, uh, in, in, in really leading up into last week, uh, the, the ongoing, I don't want to say saga, but it's a really an interesting story, I think, with Bill Ackman. I, I love to call him Bill Spackman now because he really, it, the reason why this matter, you know, Tontine, I mean, it was the biggest SPAC ever when it raised $4 billion in its IPO. So I, I think that this is a story worth following, but, but Bill Ackman's SPAC, has uh, has officially signed a really, uh, I, I think this is a really big deal in clearly a market that is going to remain relevant, I suspect, for at, le- at the very least the rest of our lifetimes. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a, not only a very relevant deal, but it's a very complex one. Um, I think actually it was so complex that the title of our last episode on Industry Focus was a very complex SPAC deal when we discussed <laughs> this. Um, so, we learned a little bit more over the weekend about this. Uh, Bill Ackman tweeted out at a, a little after one o'clock. He tweeted out "Happy Father's Day," and then a few minutes uh, at two o'clock, he tweeted out a up, an updated press release that said the deal had been finalized. So, if you, I'm not, I, it's not long enough of a show for me to go through the complex deal again and go all <laughs> go through all the new points. But there's three points to the deal, so I want to briefly just kind of discuss the new stuff we learned, if that's okay, and see what, sure. see what Jason has to say about this. Sure. So first, the the universal music business in general, which is not taking up all of the SPAC's money, but is the primary focus of the deal. They're buying the 10% stake. Um, they're going to distribute those shares to investors. We already knew all that. We got a few more details about Universal's business. Um, according to the press release, Universal has a 32% share of the worldwide music market. That's pretty big. Uh, you know, about a third of the music market is Universal. Um, they have all of the top 10 artists in the world. All 10 are Universal recording artists. That's a you know. So not only is it a valuable business that's generating revenue, they're building up some of the most valuable intellectual property um, in the, in the industry. Uh, they've grown revenue at about a 10% annual rate recently. Uh, it was down to 5% last year because of COVID, which is to be expected. Um, you know, the music business just you know, wasn't having a good year in year, a year where no one could go do anything. Um, and the business is run, running at a pretty impressive 19% operating margin. 
you know, the bottom line operating margin, 19%. That's pretty impressive. Uh, wow. not- Particularly when you look at the economics of the music business, generally speaking, I mean, it, it is a business, it seems, fraught with red tape. Uh, but, but then also, I think probably most investors out there, when they think about the music business, they're thinking about Spotify, right? Or Apple Music. And, and really, I mean, Spotify and Apple Music are the ones that are licensing that music from Universal, aren't they? Yeah, and this is like you know, Universal's considered like a legacy player, and that's the that's the kind of margin like a a, a tech company would like to get. Um, you know, ni- oh, roughly twenty percent operating, like you know, bottom line operating margin. That's pretty impressive for any company. Um, so that's what we learned about Universal. That's the big part of the deal, money wise. Um, then you have the remaining uh, SPAC, Pershing Square Tontine Holdings, is still going to be trading uh, under PSTH. We had a few new details about that. Um, Ackman gave a lot of new details about what happens with the warrants. Remember, all SPACs um, were issued with warrants as well. Um, so he gave us some some color on those. A lot of in, that was an un- big unanswered question from the original press release. Um, sometime after the deal starts going, they're going to have a warrant exchange period where current warrant holders can just exchange their warrants for a certain amount of shares. There's a whole table that kind of says what the exchange is going to be. Um, and kind of the, the, the tontine part of it, it, it means kind of like a community aspect to this. You know, Ackman wants this to be like the most shareholder friendly SPAC. So when <clears throat> the SPAC, the, the shares originally came with, or the, the units of the SPAC originally came with one third of a warrant. Only one ninth of a warrant was distributed to shareholders. The other two ninths is still attached to those shares and is only gate given to people who hold through the business combination oh. kind of as an incentive to not sell. I like that. So, right. So those are called the Tontine warrants in the, in the, <laughs> the presentation. That does sound like a star Wars sequel or something. I'm just saying, <laughs> yes, it go does. on. So for every nine shares you own, you'll get two of those Tontine warrants upon the business combination. They will be adjusted in price to, because, you know, uh, about three quarters of the SPAC's assets are going to buy the universal stake. So the remaining shares will be worth like five bucks. I think it was five fifty or so is going to be remaining in asset value. So the the exercise price will be adjusted downwards. Um, it will no longer be a spac, which means now they have a total of almost three billion dollars to find another business acquisition. Which Ackman specifically said it's going to be an acquisition, not something like the Universal deal where they're buying a stake. So a full want, on acquisition. So a full on spac acquisition. Gotcha. Okay. Um, but it's no longer a SPAC now because it already completed a business. Uh, it you know did the Universal deal, which means that they no longer have that two year time frame working against them. So they can they have a three billion dollar war chest and they can kind of pick and choose their spot as to you know they can work on whatever timeline works best for their shareholders, which is nice. So that's what we learned about the remaining uh, assets. Oh, and uh, immediately after that, they're going to undergo a one, a four for one reverse split or a one for four reverse split, um, because, like I said, there's going to be like five, their shares are going to be like five dollars after the after Universal comes out. Um, so they want it. He wants to bring it up to a twenty two dollar net asset value per share in the remaining spec. That is that is just a an interesting. I mean, like it, it does go to show you, and I I, I always <laughs> I always like to say this, but investing is it's as easy or as difficult as you want to make it. Um, it it does feel like that's a pretty complicated <laughs> that's a pretty a pretty complicated uh, sort of sort of process that this has been going through. And we're not done yet. 
<laughs> okay, we'll go on. So that was part two of the three. Um, then you have the Spark, which is like the new SPAC. That's right. Um, I discussed what the Spark was. Essentially, it's a blank check company that's not raising any money initially. They don't raise money until they actually find an, an acquisition target. So you don't, it, you know, it's it's kind of a cross between a SPAC and the traditional IPO. And they, by the time they're raising money, investors know what they're buying. Um, so everyone who owns, for every share of Pershing Square Tontine Holdings you own, you'll get one of these Spark warrants that will allow you to participate in whatever the eventual business combination is at an exercise price of $20. So this Spark will have up to $10.6 billion, which is a lot more than Project Square Tontine had even, to pursue an, a mega acquisition. And they have a 10-year time frame, which is a big competitive advantage over a SPAC. You know, if if one of these big companies says, we're not quite ready to go public yet, but give us five years, Ackman can wait for that. Other SPACs can't. That's a, that's a big competitive advantage here. So everyone's getting a, one of these warrants, which I think is probably the most underappreciated part of this transaction. Um, that The universal um, part alone is worth about what the shares are trading for today. Then you're getting that remaining part of the, the company. Then you're getting that spark warrant, which the, the Pershing Square Tontine SPAC warrants trade for like $7 right now. And they have a higher $23 exercise price. They're about to be forced to be exercised. So these could be worth more than that. And you're getting one for every share you own. So it's a pretty, I like the value in this deal a lot. I have actually increased my position uh, since they announced it. Um, and now because I know what the deal is, and it's more, it, I'd call this a lot more of a value investment than a growth investment, especially Universal is a, you know, a, a big established company. Um, the spark warrants are very investor friendly. So I would actually call this a lot more of a value investment than a growth investment at this point. I actually bought some in my retirement account. Oh, wow. Wow. So, well, I mean, yeah, that's a, uh, I mean, I mean, for, for an investor that, I mean, clearly I, I, I mean, obviously he's a very smart man. He, he clearly knows what he's doing and the financial media loves to have fun with him when something goes south. Uh, but the fact of the matter is, he's 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 had a lot of success as an investor, and um, while this is clearly a complicated deal, um, it, it does it does seem like it, it is it is something very intentional. It seems like he's going into this with with something in mind. <laughs> to be honest with you, it seems like it seems like he's going into this. I, I mean, it, 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 do you feel like he has in mind that that next acquisition he's looking to bring in? It feels like he does for the remaining spec, not, not not for the spark, not for that new big ten billion dollar, you know, company, but for the the roughly three billion dollars he'll have to play with in Pershing Square Tontine. It sounds like he has something in mind. I I don't know that for a fact. That's just my opinion, just from reading this. And by the way, I didn't go over all the new information we learned. It's not that long of a show. <laughs> so um, his. If you uh, look at Bill Ackman's Twitter handle, all these uh, press releases are right there. There's a link to the the website with the press release. If you want to read through it, it's it's a it's a heavy read, but it's it's um, oh, and the other thing, they're having an investor day on Wednesday, so they're going to have a hopefully more easily digestible investor presentation um, that you can view on Wednesday on their website. 
Absolutely, yeah, that'll be well worth tuning into. Um, I mean, if nothing else, you learn something from it. But um, also, I'll be I'll be fascinated to see kind of where this goes because one thing I do know about Bill Ackman, and and this is just through interviews I've seen with him through the years, he's a big fan of the restaurant business. He does like the restaurant business a lot, you know, and and, and I get that when you find a good operator. I mean, hey, everybody's got to eat, and, and it does feel like in this day and age, more and more folks are relying on restaurants than ever before. Um, and, and hey, I mean, there's there's always going to be that sort of opportunity and the, the attraction there of those repeat sales. I think it was he was talking about an investment in Domino's he made recently that he was really fond of because they're such a good operator. Yeah, and you remember on our show a while ago, we went over the list of kind of the rumor mill uh, for Pershing Square Tontine, and Subway was one of the top, top uh, picks. That's a big private company. It uh, is. Wa- I mean, Wawa was of, another one. <laughs> a lot of people didn't realize. I mean, in, in, uh, this this had been the case for a while, but Subway being the largest restaurant company, I think, in the world. I mean, I think it, it was always yeah, and it's private. Where, yeah, and and folks would think, well, it was McDonald's, and the fact of the matter was, Subway is uh, larger, which is just a. Uh, Amazing to think about, but then when you uh, take note of wherever you are, I mean, it does feel like there's a subway everywhere. Uh, so, <laughs> yes, sir. I, I think there, I room. think there's like three within walking distance of where I'm standing right now. Yeah, I, I totally believe it. Wow, this will be a fascinating one to follow. I, I, complicated, yes, but appreciate you digging into that, um, Matt. Let's pivot here a little bit. Talk about some more big picture. Uh, stuff in 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 really you know we've heard more uh, and more about inflation here over the past several weeks than probably we have over the last decade. I mean, I think the conversation over the last decade was, well, inflation's in check, so rates will stay low and moving on. And and now we're at a point where inflation is starting to become a bit more of a concern, uh, and and we've seen the Fed is is sort of accelerating its timeline a little bit. We're seeing. Uh, how banks are going into this period of time, how they're preparing themselves. Um, I mean, it just it seems like there's a lot to discuss in, in regard to this. So, I mean, let's just start it off with the, the Fed meeting from last week, right? I mean, I think that was something where not I, I, I personally wasn't terribly surprised to see that headline that they are essentially accelerating their time frame on when they plan to raise interest rates next. I mean, it, it's been so long sort of the the status quo. I mean, at some point or another, you got to start having that other conversation. And, and it sounds like the Fed is is accelerating that time frame. What do you think there? Yeah. I mean, we're not used to being in this type of situation where there's real inflation happening. Um, can, I mean, do you remember the last time we were in a real inflationary environment? It had to be in the 90s. I, yeah. I mean, it may be. I, that, that's, I, I would imagine that was it, but it certainly doesn't feel like it's been anything over the last couple of decades. Yeah. And, I mean, it's, in the last decade, like since the financial crisis, the Fed has tried. They can't buy an inflation rate. They've tried to. <laughs> um, they, they've been, remember, they've, they've had this 2% target for you know 12 years now. And they just can't get there. They've they've like edged up against it once or twice, but they just can't get there. Um, and now we're seeing. I uh, just to run through some of the numbers. The CPI is up five percent year over year uh, as of the latest data. The PPI, the producer price index, is up six point six percent year over year. These are the highest inflation numbers in about thirty years. Um, core inflation is up three point eight percent. When you back out things like energy, um, to kind of which is tends to be the most volatile part of it. Um, so, we talked about this a few shows ago that stocks produce, or you know, stock inflation is generally bad for stocks, right? 
Yes and no. I mean, I get yes, but by the same token, I mean, one lesson we've always used with our, uh, you know, full school and when we're teaching younger folks the value of investing in, in, in teaching them the, the dangers of inflation, right? If you just put that money at a piggy bank, I mean, over time, it ultimately really is losing value. Whereas if, if you're invested, you're diversified, you do it in, in the good times and the bad, that is really going to be one of the one of the greater ways, one of the best ways to counter that inflation. But go on. Right. No, and I'm glad you brought up the the that you know your money's losing value just sitting there. Um, so that it investors, it's important to focus on real returns. Real returns are the difference, of course, between your actual investment returns and the inflation rate. If inflation's at three percent a year and your portfolio went up by seven percent, your real return was four percent. The difference between them. So historically, the sweet spot is two to three percent inflation, which is why the Fed targets that range. Um, the, the stocks have generally produced the best real returns in periods where inflation is between two and three percent. If you go back like fifty years, so we're we're a little above that now, which is kind of scaring investors. That's why we're having this whole conversation. Um, so just a couple of things, and then I'll get into some specifics on why we're seeing all this inflation and all that. Generally, value stocks tend to outperform growth stocks, which is great for us at the financial show. <laughs> um, and you want to focus on stocks that have pricing power. Some stocks have the ability to raise prices along with inflation without losing any demand whatsoever. Utilities are a great example. No matter, you know, if if my electric company raised rates by five percent, I would still be turning my lights on as much as I am now. Um, so, you know, that's a, a perfect example of a company with pricing power. Financials we've talked about um, to some degree. Um, you know, they don't do great in a hyperinflationary environment. But when inflation's a little high, they get to raise rates and you know, they make more money on loans, things like that. Um, so why are we seeing all this inflation? inflation? Um, I, I can pick, kind of narrow it down to five reasons Okay. If, if, I, if we can go into those. Absolutely. Let's do it. Um, everyone, everyone blames it on the Fed. That's reason number one out of five. <laughs> um, the Fed's loose monetary policy. I mean, the Fed has the, the, the mandate to control inflation. Right, that's that's one of the reasons we have the Fed, or the at least the policy making arm, um, the FOMC. So, the Fed's monetary policy has been very, very loose, and got even more so after the COVID pandemic hit. Um, they're doing their their quantitative easing, which means they're buying bonds at a rate of 120 billion dollars a month to inject more capital into the system. Uh, interest rates are at near zero levels. We had just like just really been in the middle of a rate hike increase when COVID or a rate hike cycle when COVID hit, and now we're back to zero. So the Fed zero. I mean, when money's cheap and they're just injecting liquidity into the system, that is going to produce some inflationary pressure. That's not the only reason we're seeing inflation. So that's one. Number two is the all the stimulus we've been seeing. This is separate from the Fed. All the, the you know the CARES Act with the the stimulus checks, we've had three rounds of stimulus checks now. People are about to start getting monthly checks to uh, for an increased child tax credit uh, the second half of the year. We had the PPP, which injected billions of dollars into the system. A lot of stimulus creating a lot of inflationary pressure. And that's another thing that people, That's I'd have to call the number two that people blame this on. Everyone's going out and spending their stimulus checks. That's just making all the inflation. <laughs> and I said, like, you know, Jason didn't take his family to the stables, and I didn't take my family to Disney World a month ago because we got stimulus checks. It's because we wanted to get out. <laughs> yeah. So th that really brings me to number three, demand. Um, inflation is really supply and demand-driven when you get outside of the policy sphere. Um, you know, uh, 
too many people want something and there isn't enough of it, the price is going to go up. Um, If anyone's tried to book a plane ticket or a hotel in the past month or two, it got a whole lot more expensive. And the reason is supply and demand. I mean, demand has just gone through the roof lately. In a lot of ways, the reopening is tougher on the economy than shutting down because of the big spike in demand. I mean that's and I, I mean I'm glad you said that because I mean I, I know that it probably grinds someone's gears but but there is some truth to that I mean you are you are right there in that I mean when you, when you have all of this money chasing a somewhat limited amount of goods I mean the impact is is obvious now I guess then the question is is it you know we hear this word transitory mentioned and, and, and we'll get into that but it it does make you wonder is this something that's lasting or is it something that is just a a temporary blip right so I mean a lot of it depends on the Fed that's the most I guess the most control you could have out of any of these factors um, you know you, you can't could, you can't tell people to stop taking vacations you can't tell people to stop going to the store but the Fed can adjust monetary policy to, to control inflation. Um, so so th- those are three. Um, going further, th- the supply chain disruptions, that's another temporary one, like the transitory factors you were just mentioning. Um, I don't know, have you driven by any new car dealerships in the past few few months? Um, not, not, not where I've paid any attention, though. Next time you do, pay attention. Um, the, the big Nissan dealership near my house normally has 300 or so new cars on the lot. You know how many they have right now? Seven. Really? Wow. I was going to say 50. I'd have been way off even with that. The the Chevy dealership near me normally has a few hundred cars. They have some trucks. You know how many actual cars they have, like sedans? Zero. There is not one new Chevy car in the Columbia, South Carolina dealership. So that's a big supply chain disruption. That's led to used car values, which are a part of inflation, really spiking. The, my Ford SUV that I bought two years ago is worth more now than I paid for it new. <laughs> That's just insane to even think and, about. And I mean, I would go sell it to the dealership, but then I have to buy another inflated and, car. So exactly. it's, it's, it's it's a paper gain. It's the same thing with the inflated home value. I mean, hey, you can sell your house for twice that you bought it. And it's like, well, that sounds great, but then I got to go buy another house. So unless you know that you're going to be right. moving somewhere where it's just substantially lower cost of living. I mean, you know, listen, that's a lot of work for probably not a lot of gain. There's a lot of supply chain disruptions going on in food service right now. Yeah. You can't get chicken wings in a lot of places. That's a big <laughs> supply chain thing. It's um, the chicken wars. We we went out to dinner for Father's Day. My wife wanted chicken wings. They didn't have any because of the supply. And it wasn't because it was Sunday and they ran out. It was a supply chain thing. Um, I mean, my Costco was out of, was out of wings. Whoa. Um, there, we, when I walked into Chipotle, there was a big sign that said, due to supply chain limitations, we are out of several items. Apologies for the inconvenience. That is driving up prices in a lot of cases. Not just the cars. That's just a really visible example. If anyone drives by, most people don't notice, but if you drive by a new car dealership, you'll see a lot of empty parking lot these days. <laughs> um, it, it's the, the Range Rover dealership near me, and it's not just the, the norm, the, you know, the high-end models are going crazy too. The Range Rover dealership near me, it's right on the interstate, so you can see right into it. Empty showroom. There's three spots for cars. There's not one in the in the showroom. Not that's one. Just amazing. That's amazing. Um, so that's four. And number five, which is I'd say probably the more controversial of the five, is wage pressure. Um, right now, there's you, you probably heard there's an, a worker shortage. American Airlines has been canceling flights for this very reason. I have heard. Uh, that's very real. The question is, what's causing it? Um, everyone blames it on the unemployment benefit boost. Um, 
But whatever the reason is, these the companies, especially in the in the food service and retail industries, are really having to wait, raise wages to compete and get employees. Um, I mean, I know a restaurant owner here who was getting you know they had to close Mondays and Tuesdays because they didn't have enough staff. And he said he raised he raised the minimum wage or he raised their starting wage by three dollars an hour, and now he has too many applications. <laughs> well, so well, it, I mean, it's just supply and demand, right? I mean, it's it's, right. it's economics at work. I mean, that's just uh, at least we know that that you know the world the world hadn't gone completely crazy, <laughs> right? But that those that three dollars an hour he raised it. Who's going to pay for that? Oh yeah, well, I mean, it all. Yeah, I mean, I know what you mean. It's it's it's, it's someone's got to so, pay for it. So whatever the cause, there's a bunch of cause. It's not just the unemployment. I mean, a lot of parents don't have childcare and can't work um, right now. A lot of daycares haven't reopened since the pandemic in in some places, or they're just getting ramped back up. Um, there, there's a bunch of reasons why, but the fact of the matter is, people, are, companies are raising wages. Uh, Chipotle, I mentioned already, just they just announced they're raising um, their their prices by five percent in order to raise wages to be more competitive and get staff because they're, I mean, there's an hour wait for burritos at the Chipotle by me because they don't have staff. Man, um, and. I mean, I, I I didn't wait an hour. I left, but <laughs> <laughs> I left and just went to, went went home at eight. But um, it, it's the wage pressure is very real, and that is always always passed on to the consumer. Companies do not just take a hit to their profit margin. That's always no. passed on to the consumer. No, but it, it, by the same token, I mean you do see you, you, one thing one thing to look for, and, and it is it is. You know, nice to see companies that that do take that longer view and and uh, maybe don't necessarily view putting it all on the consumer, right? Maybe stepping back a little bit and realizing that, hey, they've got a good thing going, and and you know, even even if we take a little bit of short term pain in this price increase, it it could still ultimately work out uh, in, in favor in the long run. Yeah, and um, I feel I feel like the retailers really won that part of the game. I mean, Co- Costco, Target, the big box retailers really won the the that battle, I guess you'd say, which is is really contributing to why the restaurants are having such trouble right now. I mean, you know, Costco's minimum wage right by me, I don't know where it is, what it is in even higher cost areas in Columbia, South Carolina, it's $17. Target's at $15. The restaurant minimum wage here is still 2.13 an hour plus tips. So I and when I I've come from the restaurant industry I, I I ran a restaurant for several years before you know in a in a in a previous lifetime, but it's not an easy job to work at a restaurant. So when when these workers are seeing oh I could go work at Costco and make seventeen dollars an hour, why am I going to do thirteen two two dollars thirteen plus tips? Well, uh, and, so I mean I also like remember. Big box, that tip environment is is certainly far different than it used to be. I mean, tip that word tip. I mean, it used to mean something much 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 different than, than it means today, right? I mean, it, it just it, well, it used to mean you left with food. cash every day. That's not the case anymore. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, but I mean, the way you, we order our food even now. I mean, whether we go to a restaurant or have it delivered. I mean, tips just tips are a little bit of a different thing now than they were just several years ago. Yeah, I mean. Like I said, the big box retailers really just kind of won the race to like paying fair wages. I guess you'd say, yeah. And it's not—I wouldn't say one. It's not over yet. Some like Walmart, I think, is still not at fifteen dollars, uh, but just did a, have done such a better job of making their starting pay much higher than minimum wage. Yeah. Um, 
Well, we had on Twitter. We had on Twitter here earlier uh, today, and, and and I think this 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 guy must have been channeling, uh, you know, what you and I were talking about as far as the show, because Gus Pendergrass on on Twitter asked us a question for today's show: Will the rising cost of homes and autos end up being good for banking stocks, higher loan amounts, and increasing length of loans? And I think you know, you and I had this discussion to an extent. I believe it was last week, but you do see in these in these types of, of uh, times with you know home prices on the rise, automobile prices on the rise. I mean, ultimately, that kind of stuff, interest rates on the way up, that is that is good for banks. Well, on the home side, absolutely. And not just because they're going to see higher mortgage amounts. It's because the existing mortgage or the existing homeowners have so much more equity in their home right now to borrow against. I mean, I, I read that it, home equity in the United States is up by $2 trillion this year alone. Yeah, that's a lot. That's money that people can borrow against. If you refinance, you could borrow and take some of that money out. So that's where you're really going to see the banks making bigger and bigger loans. It's not necessarily the purchase market. Right now, home inventories are very low, despite the rise in prices. Oh, yeah. You know, it doesn't really matter if prices are up by 20%, if inventory is 50% lower than it normally is. That's not a good thing for banks. But where, <laughs> where, it's, where it's good is people who are holding on to their houses and have appreciated in value and now, now can use that money to borrow against. Um, and I mean, the auto market, like, I, and I mentioned the supply chain disruptions. If auto prices are going through the roof, but you can't get a car, <laughs> it doesn't really matter how much they matter. cost to banks. Yep. They're not doing a loan on a car that does, that isn't on the lot. So, I mean, well, Wells Fargo is one of the biggest uh, new car uh, lenders. And, and if, if new car dealerships don't have inventory, that's, that, it doesn't matter what the price is, how much demand is driven up the price. I mean, if there's no inventory, then they're not making loans. So, I think the refinancing thing is really what's th- the big news for banks right here. Yeah. Yeah, that makes that makes sense, and I mean it was just very interesting too to to see um, recently J.P. Morgan CEO Jamie Dimon, you know, talking about his belief that that inflation to a degree may be maybe more than transitory. I mean, he said the bank is hoarding cash because he believes there's going to be an opportunity to, to to take advantage of that here soon. Yeah, I saw I. He said J.P. Morgan has $500 billion of cash on its balance sheet. I didn't just misspeak. $500 billion. And that's not cash that they can go spend, uh, just to be clear. on when, when we say that a bank has cash on its balance sheet, it's different than saying like Apple has cash. Um, but this is cash that they could loan. This is cash that they could invest in treasury bonds or something to that effect, or treasury, treasury notes or, or the short term. They don't want to right now because they think rates are low and they're going to go up. They think the Fed is going to be forced to raise rates. So the Fed, the big news out of the Fed meeting was that they're seeing it was it was originally projected the last time the Fed made their projections that they weren't going to start raising rates till after 2023. So first rate hikes would be in 2014 or 2024 rather. Um, the latest projections that just came out said now we're calling for two rate hikes in 2023. The market consensus, based on the futures market, is that they are going to have to hike rates in 2022, a year earlier than even than even they think, and there are going to be at least four rate increases by 2023. So the expectations keep getting higher and higher for interest rate increases, and if inflation stays where it is now, they're going to get even more. Um, so Jamie Dimon is saying that as these rates rise, 
there are going to be exponentially better places for them to put those that cash than there are right now. So I mean, that's a bold projection. He could be wrong, but he could be. He could be. But I I, I feel like uh, I mean it seems like at least a reasonable bet. Yeah, I mean I don't think he's being unreasonable, and I could see other banks um, following him into this. But they are definitely stockpiling some cash right now, and. I mean, if, for, if consumer demand goes through the roof, let's say the automakers get their act together and get the supply chain things worked out, and everyone now all of a sudden there's a ton of new cars to buy, people are <laughs> going to need loans. Yeah. Let's say that people decide to sell their house in large numbers in, in June and July, which historically the summer is the selling season. Yeah, so, it is. You know, it, it, it could be wise, not just to, for investment purposes and like treasuries and stuff, but just for consumer demand uh, reasons, it could be a good idea to keep some cash on the sidelines. Yeah, and you know, it feels like at least, at least with this automobile supply chain issue, and I mean, there there have been all sorts of reasons for this, right? I mean, there's the pandemic. There are just there, there are, there are physical issues in regard to barriers, right? Blockades, ways for to actually physically move things from point A to point B. Uh, but I mean, we've also been talking a lot about the semiconductor shortage. I mean, that's clearly something that's still playing out right now. Uh, most of these companies that that really that really run this space, the the biggest the biggest names in in, in the space, see see that that pressure abating a little bit here in the back half of 2021. But until it happens, it, it hasn't happened. And and clearly that's been a big cause of of uh, of the the automobile shortage. I mean, right? I mean, cars are just rolling computers now. But I mean, we've seen that semiconductor shortage just play out in in all sorts of different markets. It's been a little bit little bit of an issue. But again, that kind of goes back to that. Well, it's not a permanent thing. It doesn't look like it's something that should be permanent. And therefore, uh, you know, if we can see at least a little bit of easing on that front, that might that might help the cause. Yeah, and I'm not saying it's the automaker's fault, but you know, it's definitely a disruption. And I mean, as these as these supply chain disruptions get worked out, the you know the you know, supply starts to normalize, not just in the auto industry, but like you said, a bunch of industries that are being affected. Um, we could see a you know even more pent up demand. We're, we're, I mean, we're seeing consumer spending up 20 percent from pre pandemic levels right now, and that's with all these supply chain disruptions going on. Yeah, yeah, we. Talked about that last week with the uh, Bank of America and Brian Moynihan's recent comments. Yep. So it's it's interesting time. <laughs> indeed, indeed. Well, before we take off, Matt, we've got some stocks for our listeners to keep their eyes on this week. What is a stock that you'll be watching this week? Uh, General Motors. Um, oh, speaking GM. of autos, I've mentioned that a few times. Like I said, I think uh, you're going to see a lot of consumer demand when the supply chain issues get worked out that are going on right now. They recently upped their investment spending plan in electric vehicles from, I think, 27 to 35 billion dollars by 2025. Um, they're spending heavily in EVs. Uh, they're they're um, partnering. For, uh, for fuel cell technology or hydrogen fuel cell technology, things like that. I think there is, they are not only one of the most underappreciated opportunities in electric vehicles, but in the entire stock market. I think GM has 10x potential over the next decade. If they re, they're, they're not only going after the passenger market, they're going after delivery, they're going after air transport, they're going after commercial vehicles, they're, they're trying to just kind of go into everything and, and they're, they're willing to spend the money to do it right. And, I, I think they have the know-how. I mean, their cruise subsidiary is itself could be worth more than GM is worth today. Um, I, th- I think they see the um, autonomous 
transportation industry is a seven seven trillion dollar opportunity. Um, when you talk about like an automated version of Uber that they could eventually make or something to that effect. Um, so I I think that's one of the most overlooked stocks in the market. Um, I am hev- heavily invested in GM, and I think that's going to be you know, you know people give me a lot a hard time about that because it's seen as a legacy company. It's seen as a boring automaker. But I think in a decade, you're going to look back and say that it was not so boring. Sometimes you got to be able to get over that legacy opinion because uh, while not all companies are able to make that uh, that pivot, some are. Uh, so so you got to make sure to follow that. Well, I mean, I, I can just, uh, I'm sure every listener just heard GM and 10X and did a double take, but we'll, we'll definitely be keeping an eye on that one. That's, that's a good one. Um, <laughs> well, hey. Sometimes you got to get out there. Sometimes you got to put yourself out there, Matt. You're doing that. I love it. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna keep an eye on Nike this week. Talking about companies with purchase uh, with with pricing power, um, companies that could be impacted by inflation or supply chain concerns. I mean, Nike is. I mean, everybody knows what Nike is, right? They've got earnings coming out on Thursday after the market closes. Um, They've had a a really good last 12 months, given everything that's gone on, and they basically matched the market over the last uh, 12 months. But year-to-date, the stock is down almost 10%. Um, and uh, you know that that could be because it it was a company that recovered a little bit more a little bit earlier from from the pandemic concerns. But given everything that we've talked about on today's show with inflation, with supply chain constraints, um, I'm just going to be, be be interested to hear management's uh, take on those those concerns uh, on Thursday during the earnings call. So we'll be keeping an eye on Nike and earnings on Thursday. Uh, but Matt, I think that is going to do it for us this week. Thanks so much for taking the time to join. And remember, folks, you can always reach out to us on Twitter at MF Industry Focus, or you can drop us an email at industryfocus at fool.com. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Thanks, as always, to Tim Sparks for putting the show together for us. For Matt Frankel, I'm Jason Moser. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. 